Blasio's rezoning's gone off the rails for good. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and we are talking today housing, neighborhood development, community development, and neighborhood rezonings. And we're happy now to be joined here in the studio by Matthew Murphy, the executive director of the NYU Furman Center and a former city housing official. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, just tell listeners and tell us just a little bit about, um, A, what the Furman Center does, and then B, um, if you could just capture a little bit of, of your city government experience for folks. Sure, happy to. So NYU Furman Center is a joint research center between NYU's School of Law and NYU's Wagner School of Public Policy. Um, it's actually our 25th anniversary this year. I'm also happy to be, uh, we're way behind uh, WBAI, but um, I don't know if we'll ever be able to catch up, actually. <laughs> so, um, but uh, for, so it's for 25 years, I've been doing research on uh, land use issues in New York City, um, real estate issues and urban policy. And increasingly, we've expanded that to a national conversation. Um, but our bread and butter really is in New York City, uh, real estate, land use and affordable housing issues. And your experience uh, working in city government? Yeah. So um, as of April of 2019, I was a deputy commissioner um, at HPD. Um, I ran our data and policy teams um, and saw some of the insight uh, inside conversation around mandatory inclusionary housing, certi- certification of no harassment, some of the big uh, policy proposals that have come out of the de Blasio administration. So talking broadly, since you were part of shaping the mayor's approach, and now you're part of studying it, evaluating it, what characterizes the de Blasio approach to affordable housing? How does his plan differ from what mayors Koch and Bloomberg did, who had other very ambitious plans? What makes it different? Um, What distinguishes it? And how do you feel broadly it has done to this point? Yeah, so I think uh, first I would say it, it has built on that legacy. I think um, the Koch housing plan is really seen as kind of the foundational um, housing policy for the city. Um, and growing out of such an interesting time period, such disinvestment and such um, opportunity with the assets that the city had, uh, the city owned uh, almost 200,000 units of housing um, when the Koch plan was made. And now it owns less than 1,000, I believe. So those eras have been about disposition of that um, uh, city-owned housing. Um, and that's been remarkably successful um, prior, prior to de Blasio, uh, especially where you were um, putting that housing into the private market hands, uh, nonprofits um, selling those properties for a dollar, in some cases selling it to the residents of those buildings for one dollar and, and owning those buildings. Um, but that was really the um, kind of the, the spirit of the Koch plan. Um, and, and that's continued. Um, and so the city then, when you move into uh, Mayor Bloomberg's period, you saw the first uh, new housing marketplace plan was created. And that really, I would say, distinguished itself in that it was very focused on housing supply, uh, very focused on rezonings, uh, neighborhood growth, economic growth. Um, And if you remember, um, you know, Mayor Bloomberg starting in 2000, uh, early 2000s, the city was in an era of coming out of 9-11. And part of, I think, the spirit of that plan was attracting investment and um, and growing supply using rezonings and whatnot. And then you had the financial crisis hit and, um, and the city kind of pivoted 
really into trying to take what was being built and turn that into affordable housing, uh, trying to recover, and then Hurricane Sandy hit. So you had, I would say, more shifts, I think, in the Bloomberg era where it was, if you could call it housing, the housing plan, um, you you had a stalwart plan and then you also had events that required these kind of like, you know, targeted um, targeted thinking. Um, and then with the de Blasio plan, I would say it's it's a lot of that prior thinking on steroids. I mean, if you look at the first uh, de Blasio plan put out, Housing New York, um, I guess you can call it 1.0. Uh, but, the you know, it, there are so many ideas in there. There are so many initiatives, um, so much context um, that I think part of the early you know, question of the plan was like, how are they going to do all that? <laughs> um, and and a lot of that was about, I would say, uh, supply um, and recognizing that we were in a supply crunch. Um, and obviously, affordable housing supply is a major part of that. And preservation, I would say, whereas the Koch plan preservation might have been seen as like disposing it and reactivating it, I would say this is uh, the Basis plan is much more focused, and Housing 2.0 actually really reflects us on um, anti-displacement initiatives, uh, preserving affordable housing, like somewhat thinking of it as unacceptable of losing affordable housing, but not only doing that and pairing that with a lot of um, new construction um, and, and new um, kind of uh, funding sources to do that. Um, and then, of course, now it's kind of the the local housing policy conversation is really, as you guys mentioned, shifted to conversation about NYCHA. Mm-hmm. The rezonings um, were, were certainly part of the picture in the Bloomberg era. He rezoned, I think, like 40 percent of the city's right. square footage. But it was not tethered to his um, new housing marketplace housing plan. There was some overlap, but a lot of Bloomberg rezonings were, were down zonings, were contextual. They didn't necessarily create new space right. for new housing. Some certainly did. And they weren't tied, except in a few cases, with voluntary programs to creating new affordable housing. Uh, but rezonings have always been at least a very prominent part of the mayor's this current mayor's plan. Um, on paper and in practice, how big a part are they? I mean, I think he's targeted uh, initially was supposed to be 15 neighborhoods. I think we've done six. We're going to talk more about a few that are kind of on the table now. But how much a part of the thread of his approach is are the rezonings? Yeah, I th- they're they're a major part. And obviously, you know, the the game, I think, changed a lot when you had the um, Williamsburg rezoning on, under the Bloomberg administration. Um, and there were a lot of calls that this, the city didn't get enough back in return for that, um, that only market rate housing and layered with the voluntary program was was not going to be enough. Um, and, you know, in 20 in, you know, when mandatory inclusionary housing passed, I think in 2016, um, you know, I think there was intense criticism of that. And there's there still is. I was there the day that. Uh, the the bill passed and people had glued their hands together in protest um, in the city council chambers. In the city yeah. council mm-hmm. chambers, and it, you know, it was a very like um, yeah, anti gentrification kind of message. And I think you know, to the, to the mayor's credit, he has he has seen the rezonings as the opportunity uh, with MIH especially to be to to take kind of a measured. Um, uh, approach to adding supply and that new supply that was going to result from a rezoning um, was going to have to have affordable housing in it 
it was going to have to be, you know, it was just a requirement. Um, and so I think the rezonings are, I, I would call them, you know, somewhat peripheral to sort of like how you contextualize it for the Bloomberg administration, that you could still do the housing, the new construction, and you could still do the preservation um, work with the uh, funding that was being made available, the capital funding, tax credit funding, and all that. But you are going to get so much more both market rate housing and now permanent affordable housing with mandatory inclusionary housing. So while mandatory inclusionary housing wasn't necessary to do like the de Blasio plan, it's just such a, um, I think, uh, per- unique perspective that the de Blasio administration has around, okay, we're going to, we are focused on growth. We see our housing shortage, but as we grow, we're going to make sure that the neighborhoods um, where there's growth are going to have permanent affordable housing. It's going to be inclusive. And and just a little bit for, and we can all sort of chime in here, but, you know, just for folks that aren't totally up on all the terms we're using. I mean, and very often when we talk about a rezoning, you know, Jarrett mentioned there were in the Bloomberg administration, more of a mix of up zonings and down zonings where you're, you know, you're sort of in an up zoning, you know, kind of unleashing market f- forces in a neighborhood where you're where you're allowing more housing development and bigger and more density and, and higher and, and perhaps sometimes changing whether something is zoned for a certain type of use to allow residential or, or vice versa. Um but with mandatory inclusionary housing, any rezoning that's happening, whether it's of a neighborhood or more of an individual parcel, f- in exchange for more density, there's a requirement of affordable housing. And this was right. seen – again, people were upset about some of the details of it that you refer to with the mm-hmm. protest at the city council chambers when it passed. But this is still seen – the idea of it as a pretty sweeping, progressive change to how city – land use yeah. rules work um any disagreement with that <laughs> no i think yes that's true i think there there are certainly people who are suspicious of density regardless of how you um pretty it up right, right, or, right. or try to attach the things to it and be, because there is thinking that introducing any additional market rate housing in a neighborhood regardless of what kind of a carve out there is um creates secondary displacement and there's no way to account for that or offset it you know i think there, right, there's people that, who call for only 100 percent right. affordable so there, housing there, there is that th- a threat of opinion sure. but i think yes there is there is also a broad swath of people who saw this while they disagreed on some details as a step forward and to your point uh matthew you know <laughs> the people were surprised i remember at the time when mandatory inclusionary housing passed i remember sort of putting out there, I asked the administration about how many units within the, at that time, 200,000 unit affordable housing plan was mandatory inclusionary housing expected to produce. And it was only something like 10,000. I mean, this was much more seen as, you know, important requirements for when a neighborhood is rezoned or, or an individual, you know, plot, but also just as this very sort of for perpetuity change to the city's land use rules that will, you know, sort of forever, unless there's a, another sweeping change to it, you know, be in place to require affordable housing when, when a density bonus is, is basically allowed. Right. Yeah. And I've, I, I, I still think of it that way as well, that you have, you have some short term kind of implications where you're going to get housing under the housing plan, you're going to get affordable housing. Um, and, but that arguably MIH is, you know, going to have more benefits in the long term. 
that we might look at this 30 years from now and say, I'm glad that they passed MIH because the way we look at the Williamsburg rezoning was that maybe we didn't get enough affordable housing. If MIH was in place, okay, we would have had 20, 25% permanent affordable housing from that new construction. So I do think that there is a reason to look at or, or think, you know, sometimes I'll talk to people that are totally unfamiliar with this stuff. And, um, and of course, as you can tell, I get really into the weeds really fast. So apologies. You're in the right place here so, and you're in the okay. right job. It seems Safe like. Space, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, people are like, Oh, isn't a, isn't the Blasio's plan, isn't MIH the affordable housing plan? And like, like mm-hmm. I, I'm sure yeah. if you pulled, yeah, yeah. like a lot of people think of it that way. And it's kind of shocking, A, when you say, say, well, not it's it's part of it and it's critical, but it's also like part of just urban planning for the city um, in the long term. And another shocking thing to people is this uh, preservation idea that like it's not all about the 200,000 or the 300,000 units is not just new units. It's that there are tons of affordable units um, in the city and it takes a lot of hard work to actually keep those affordable. It takes a lot of government intervention. So Ben referenced earlier on that we had a lot of news this week about rezonings uh, well, in recent weeks, court ruling on the Inwood rezoning, which already passed. Uh, today, we saw the uh, chairman of the city council's land use committee, Rafael Salamanca, saying that he's going to oppose the possibility of a proposed rezoning in his neighborhood of Southern Boulevard in the Bronx. Announced in a city limits op-ed. Uh, of course, that's what he announced should, these things, if, should, if not, if not Everyone said. should read. Uh, but the big news this week, obviously, is about Bushwick, which is this huge, a fascinating neighborhood. It's been a fascinating process there to see the community plan come together with some involvement of the city in crafting that the city plan come out and then this question about how they would be considered uh, vis-a-vis one another. Uh, And now coming to be known that the administration is going to oppose considering the community plan in the environmental review that precedes the consideration process for its own proposal. Um, So what do you think, what do you think happened there? uh, And is there a way out of that impasse? Um, Well, I'm not, uh, you know, totally into what what exactly went down. But, uh, you know, I think just in general, the overarching theme here is there is a concern of, for, of residents of what the growth of their neighborhood means for them. And that translates into a general um, opposition to rezonings, new development, new affordable housing development, um, and the tension there and the and the distrust there that I think a lot of residents feel uh, when you when you uh, pair that with the city looking at its kind of overall housing situation and how it plays out in different neighborhoods and the overall shortage that the city has um, there's just a such an intense tension built in there that it's not surprising that you know a community when there's a conversation around rezoning uh, organizes to stem off some of the what could be the neg- what they see as the negative implications of that rezoning and that the city would hunker down and say we're thinking about this as the city so I, I think it's part of it is just that there is a balance here between what the citywide need is versus the community perspective 
and then also what the community need is because a lot of issues come up in these rezonings. And we'll get into that with City Council Member Antonio Reynoso in just a few minutes where you get into this tension, too, about the fact that, you know, a, a citywide mayoral administration is often looking at a variety of neighborhoods and the citywide numbers and local elected officials are looking at their district and listening to their constituents and sometimes, you know, very swayed by the constituents who really care about an issue or really paying attention or really motivated. We'll get into that more with him. A um, couple quest- quick questions for me. I don't know if Jared has anything final, but you sort of touched on this, but just to get clarity, is does is New York City building en- enough market rate housing right now? Um, I'm So I'll give you some numbers because that's a big part of what you don't the Urban Center the, does. You don't want to make yeah. the enough judgment. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, I could say, right. And, you know, I know I, New York City is not building enough housing um, from my perspective, um, but I can talk to somebody. I could pluck somebody off Atlantic Avenue and say we got way too much housing, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, you know, I think the so some of the numbers are, you know, people in this audience are kind of familiar with the vacancy rate, um, but the vacancy rate is actually incredibly important. Uh, because it actually statutorily says if it's under 5%, then you can have rent rent stabilization. Um, and our vacancy rate is about 3.6%. So 36 uh, out of 1,000 units are vacant at a given time. When you go to under $800 a unit, that vacancy rate is 0.9%. So it's 9 out of 1,000 units. I mean, that's just so incredibly low that there is just no opportunity for competition for renters. And you see this, right, when you're looking for housing, unless you're at the kind of very highest end. Um, you're, you're not getting concessions. You're not getting, uh, you're, 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 you know, rooming up together with roommates to look for housing. You're, par- you're kind of pooling your resources to do that. You're making trade-offs. You're moving further uh, than to the next subway line. You know, your landlord is asking for more. And so it's this lack of competition that both increases the price of housing um, and also keeps people out of the market. So it's, you know, one of the arguments around um, just market-based supply is this filtering effect. And there is actually one of the really cool things about going into research is I think when you're sitting at your city government desk at like 11 o'clock trying to come up with a new data point or new proposal or something, um, you di- you're not thinking about, okay, who's out there doing this kind of work? And there are a lot of researchers that are actually looking at the effect of supply. And there's some, you know, one person has looked at, for example, okay, when there's a move, um, uh, when a, a new building is built, and somebody moves into that unit. Well, well, who moves into that next unit? And then who moves into that unit and that unit and that mm-hmm. unit? And while the most immediate benefactor isn't necessarily like a low-income household or a, a moderate-income household, the way that housing supply kind of chain filters up um, creates more of those vacancies. And that's the idea of supply. Now, there's obviously a lot of skepticism around supply. Furman Center actually wrote a paper uh, called Supply Skepticism, or some of the arguments around it, is that when you see that, and I think that when you see uh, the building built across the street, um, 
and you see the rents on that building, you're not thinking my rent's going down because of that building. And I think, again, this is kind of the tension you see in the citywide policymaking versus the local. Well, uh, Matthew Murphy, the executive director of NYU's Furman Center, we appreciate those thoughts and everything else you shared today. And, we'll and obviously- for finally getting the Murphys to outnumber yes. the Max. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. God. yeah. Uh, we, yeah. we didn't discuss if there's a relation at the top Only of the show the here. Probable. We'll figure that out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but Matthew Murphy of the Furman Center, thank you so much for, for taking the time and joining us here today.